Today we conclude our sermon series, Swimming Upstream, Christians and Culture, as we've been making our way through Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. The reading is from 1 Corinthians 15, where he deals with death and resurrection, and it is 58 long verses. We're only reading the conclusion. <laughs> Beginning at verse 51. Look, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. When I came on staff at the church after 30 years of teaching at the seminary, one of the biggest adjustments, shocks really, was death. I could count on one hand the number of deaths in the life of the seminary over 30 years, but at the church it's about one per week. This is not a news flash, but the human condition is terminal. In a fascinating book called Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Civilization, these two Australian psychologists note that humans have a pretty big advantage over other species, but also a disadvantage in the fact that we know we're going to die. And we pretty much know it, they say, by the age of 10. But it becomes clearer and clearer the older we get. When Barbara Brown Taylor's career took her the opposite direction from an Episcopal priest at a local church to teaching undergrads religion at a liberal arts college in Georgia, death was also one of her learning curves, but not the amount of funerals. It was their view of death. These co-eds had, for the most part, grown up in church. This was the Bible Belt, after all but she was a bit surprised at their views of death. One co-ed, for instance, confessed that she was envious of other faith traditions, other religions like Judaism and Islam and Buddhism because they're all about life on this earth and Christianity is just about death and the next life. Not exactly. <laughs> if she had read 1 Corinthians 15, she might have thought otherwise. Or maybe not, because this is one hard chapter. It's not just hard because it's 58 verses. So you know how on the SAT exams they have these comprehension things where you read three or four paragraphs, like maybe it's on butterfly migration or the solar system, and then after you read that there's these four or five questions to see if you got the logic, the flow, etc. Well, good luck if 1 Corinthians 15 is the text, because this is hard stuff very hard stuff. As I read it, two things become very clear. 
And both of them are counter to what we've pretty much heard all our lives, maybe even taught ourselves. Kind of like when um, Galileo confirmed the Copernican theory that the earth is revolving around the sun, even though it looks for all the world like we're sitting still and the sun is moving. The, these two ideas, they're, they're not what we've always thought. The first one has to do with the body, the human body. You, you seem to have one, right? I mean, we have one. Turns out, 1 Corinthians is very much focused on the body. The word occurs 50 times. Paul uses it when he talks about sex. It's bodily function. He uses the body when he talks about food. It's a bodily function. And he has this extended metaphor in which he thinks of the church as a body and we're all the different parts hopefully working together. So it's really not a surprise that when he gets to the resurrection, for him, it is bodily. There's no talk about our souls going to heaven. That's Plato, not Paul. It's Greek philosophy, not Christian theology, although it's sort of bled in over the years. Here's one way to get at it. It's a weird way, I admit. Week before last, on our patio in the back, evidence of a mouse. Now, when I say evidence of a mouse, there's certainly bodily functions that mice have that we have, and, and I just, oh, my wife's going to freak out. So I got to get rid of the mouse. So I had a trap. I put some peanut butter on it, went out the next morning. Success. I went in. I said, well, good news. The mouse is no longer with us. And then I said, well, that's not exactly true. I mean, he's still out there. It's just, you know, he's just, and we both laughed. I don't know if mice have souls, but I have lost count, lost track of, of how many times I've heard funeral directors say something like, well, your great aunt's soul is, is already in heaven. This is just the body and we can cremate it. We can put it in a casket. That's not Paul. Paul says the resurrection of Jesus is bodily and it will be for us. Now, the Corinthians, they're influenced by Greek thought. And there were people who thought the body is evil. But in this case, it was more about there was this view that the body is inferior. You know, it's just an earth suit. You just wear it until it runs out and wears out and, and then you, you discard it. That's not Paul's view. Now, if you ask me, okay, so what are you saying? I'm just telling you what Paul's saying. And if you want to try the 1 Corinthians SAT test, just try it yourself. It, he does say it's a mystery. But for Paul, it's bodily. And the second thing is bodily too. Because for Paul, death is not just, and resurrection is not just about the next life. It's about this life. He, he doesn't say anything about going to heaven. In fact, for Paul, death is living in the Roman Empire. It's being surrounded by constant death in the system. This is what Paul is so keenly aware of. It, it, you you kind of pick it up, in a way, in that last verse. So imagine all 57 verses prior, and then after this long treatment of death and resurrection, he says, and don't forget, what you do here matters. Your labor's not in vain. Why would you point out what we do here matters if it's all about just going to heaven? I mean, what's the point? 
He even goes on to say in the next chapter, so I'm hoping to get to see you. He talks about his travel plans. Well, shouldn't he just be talking about how we're all going to sit on a cloud playing a harp? No. And then he talks about taking up an offering for the poor in Jerusalem. You know that thought experiment where you say to each other, so if you knew you only had a short while to live, what would you do? Everybody has a different answer. But the fact that we would do anything says we believe this world matters. We believe it. That's why our church feeds the hungry. It's why we welcome the refugee. It's why we go to Ecuador, because bodies matter in this world and not just in the next. Now, if, if you dare to do the SAT with 1 Corinthians 15, to read the whole chapter, try and outline it, diagram the sentences if you want, maybe, maybe you'll run against something, up against something that scholars are really quick to note. And that is that Paul is undoing, sort of reversing the story of Eden, those first three chapters in the Bible. You remember the couple, they, they live in paradise, that's what Eden means. Everything's perfect, cool garden, living with God, everything's great, and then evil enters the scene. And when they eat, death. God said, on the day you eat this, you're going to die. That's the kind of death Paul is talking about. It's the kind of death that means the Roman emperor and his friends, they're doing just fine, thank you very much. But the poor, the poor have to think, okay, do we get our medicine? Do we buy groceries, gas? What, what are we going to do? And Paul says the resurrection is a victory over that kind of death. I've always loved the story of the Jewish novelist, Chaim Potok. When he was a little kid, his mom said, you're going to grow up, you'll be a doctor, you make lots of money, you keep people from dying. She said this his whole life. You'll be a doctor, you keep people from dying. When he was a young man, he said, Mama, I don't want to be a doctor and keep people from dying. I want to be a writer and show them how to live. That's the kind of writer Paul was. I've known that story for a long time, but this week I ran across a story I did not know. Now, if you keep up with pop culture better than I do, which is not a high bar, you might know this story. It was just before COVID, the comedian actor Aziz Ansari, famous as Tom on Parks and Rec, he made the news, and not in a good way. It was sexual impropriety. During the height of the Me Too movement, it was not date rape per se, but very strong coercion. And so the woman afterwards, devastated, went public, and his career took a nosedive. And he decided he would use that time to try and turn his life around. So I was reading this week about this Netflix comedy special he did as he came back from that. And it sounded fascinating. So one morning out on the patio where that mouse had bitten the dust, I watched this special. And it's funny. He does his bit, his jokes. It's, of course, raunchy at times and irreverent. But it's really funny. But the crazy thing is, in the midst of this comedy routine, thousands of people, et cetera, it's being filmed, sometimes it feels like church. It gets real quiet. 
talks about his grandmother who died with Alzheimer's and how in her last days she was just so full of life. And he says, I wish I could be like that because when his career kind of took that nosedive, he said, it was like I died and in a way I did. I mean, he felt like he had died. And then here's what's really wild. Near the end where he would normally say, thank you, good night. He says, you know what? I've always said that, never really meant it. I mean, yeah, I was kind of glad, but he said, I lived my life always looking ahead. You know, like the next gig, the next thing in his career. He wasn't present in the moment. And, and the show's called Right Now. So then, kind of like, you know, in our church, how after the sermon, we just sort of sit in silence for a few moments. He kind of invites him into that. He gets real quiet, leans into the microphone. He, he's almost whispering. And he says, I, I just want to invite you to be present in the moment. You close your eyes if you want to, he says. You, you, but just, just be in the moment and be with the people you're with. You know, just, just for a few moments.